Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Well, we... By the way, I heard Stevie did a great job last week. Were you here? Stevie, thank you, sir, very much. Always love to hear from Stevie. Yeah. Uh, So we're studying the book of Mark, and we're in the passion, the last few hours of Jesus' life. And we have been for the last few weeks in the trial of Jesus, and we come to... uh, sort of the second phase of the trial as Mark presents it. Because there's really five phases to this trial, but Mark is presenting it his way, and he has one with the religious establishment, which we've already seen. And what we've seen with the religious establishment is that the trial that Jesus has is corrupt and it's rigged. And they had already uh, sort of determined what they were going to do with him before the trial. Now, it sort of moves to the political establishment. It's almost perfect timing. Uh, But you would hope now that we're in the political establishment, you're thinking to yourself, well, thank God, surely here we're going to get justice and truth and integrity and what is right, but that's not what happens. Everyone is corrupt. Judas was corrupt. The religious leaders are corrupt. Annas, who he goes to first, we don't have that in Mark, and then Caiaphas, and then Pilate, And then he goes to Herod. We don't have Herod in Mark. And then the crowd, and then Barabbas, and in all, everyone is corrupt. And in all of the mayhem, Jesus is the only sane and sinless one. And yet he's the one who gets crucified. When you look at this whole text, which we like to do sometimes, I thought you ought to see in red here at least, this doesn't even represent all of it, because you could see a little bit more, but the red represents the sin in the text, all the evil behind the trial and the people that are involved in it. You see, the religious leaders are forming a plan, and they're the ones who are envious. And then you see, uh, and they're accusing him repeatedly, and they have no, no just cause. Um, And then you have Barabbas, who's a rebel, who's committed murder and insurrection, so you see that sin. You see the crowd is just completely emotional and irrational, and uh, and they're shouting, crucify him. They have no basis for it whatsoever. Pilate is trying to satisfy the crowd, so you can see his sort of sinister motives behind what he's doing. No one in this text uh, is, is without sin. But there's one particular thing that stands out in this question. It's a question of Pilate when the crowd asks him, or when he asks the crowd, what do you want me to do with him? And they say, crucify him, and he says this right here. And this is why it stands out, why all the red stands out. Because from Pilate comes the question, what wrong has he done? without him saying it, it's all insinuated, 
all everyone else is wrong is out there for everyone to see. The crowd completely ignores the question. It never gets answered. Because there is no answer to it. He hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing. There's nothing he's done. And so the only one who stands out sinless is Jesus. Mark wants you to see that. That's important for the interplay of this entire text and where we're headed. Uh, and I want you to just notice two things. We've noticed it in the trial. It seems to be in a trial where you would notice these kind of things. Everyone sees everyone else's sin. The religious leaders know exactly how to play Pilate. And even though Pilate's the one who's ultimately in charge, he, um, even though he's in charge, he's, you, you can play him because he's so power-hungry. And he's vulnerable. I mean, if things don't go well with the Jews, he's in trouble. Because some things have already happened, and he's, and in this moment, he's a little vulnerable. That's why he placates to the crowd and why he goes with it. And the, and the religious leaders know it. Pilate knows that the religious leaders are envious of Jesus. Everybody can see everyone else's sin. Everyone can see Barabbas' sin. So everyone can see everyone's sin, but they cannot see their own at all. Sound familiar? That's exactly what's coming through in here. And as good as they are at spotting sin, no one can find it in Jesus. They're great at finding it in each other, but they can't find it in him. And so you have this sort of moral upside-down world. That's kind of what you get. And it's also why, it's also why Jesus is in the predicament that he's in. It's exactly why he is there. It's the sinless one for the sinners. He's in that spot precisely. But nobody can see it, of course. And so everything is going over to plan. If you look, if you look at this text, you'll see three times at the beginning, he's handed over. At the end, he's handed over. And somewhere in the middle, you'll see this handed over again. He's handed over. That's the term used by Jesus throughout this text of the, of the destiny and the divine will of God. It's God's will that I be handed over. And so this is exactly the plan. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. And here's what Mark wants us to do, because we have to sort of circle around and say, what do you get out of this trial? And I've got to be honest, I've never taught the trials before. So it has been really interesting for me to think through what it means for us as we consider the passion of Jesus and what his death means for us. And every week we're getting some nuance of how his death is supposed to impact our lives and what it accomplished for us. And Mark wants us to see here in this sort of context, this political context, that uh, this is exactly what God wanted. Jesus is launching his kingdom now, which he announced in chapter 1 of Mark. And his followers, you and I, are supposed to see in this moment, right here, in this moment, that, or acknowledge and see the ultimate victorious kingship of Jesus is accomplished 
through suffering and sacrifice. He's called King of the Jews six times in chapter 15, never by his own lips. They're calling him the king. And it's sort of ironic because they have the label right, but they don't see. They can't grasp what kind of king he is. And what's important for those who follow Jesus is to understand what kind of king he is so that we know how to follow him. And Mark wants us to see that. Because even as followers, as we'll see, I think here in a minute, we, we don't get it. We don't get it. Because you look at a text like this and you see Jesus and you go, man, everything's going according to plan, but it doesn't look like a very good plan. It just doesn't look that great. Um, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but I was thinking of, uh, remember when Charlie Sheen and his whole winning thing? And we all looked at him and go, winning? You're losing everything right before our eyes, and you're calling that winning. Jesus is losing everything, and he's calling that winning. And to the crowd and to the people, dude, that's not winning. Now, one of them was really winning, and one of them really wasn't, but it's, it was that radical. It was that radical to those standing around. And so this is set in a political context, and that's important for us, for our application and everything else today. Now, let me explain to you this political context. Uh, how is Jesus winning? Mark wants to exploit this political context. So Jesus is before, first of all, the political ruler of the world. All right? He's accused of political crimes. And that's the only reason he's before Pilate. When Caiaphas says, you call yourself the Messiah, the Son of God, that translates to a Roman government, oh, you see yourself as a king. That's why they call him king of the Jews. That's, that's the political, that's the political title for the messiahship that Jesus is claiming. And so because of that, he's a threat to Rome. That's the only reason he's standing before Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about a Jewish messiah. But he cares about somebody who's threatening the Caesar, who's threatening Rome. And so you see it here. And in fact, uh, Luke tells us that when they accuse Jesus in this moment, they accuse him of not paying taxes, they accuse him of perverting the nation, they accuse him of, of being a king and wanting to usurp the throne. That's the only reason he's standing there. So they call him king of the Jews. That's a political title. Um, the cross is a political symbol. Long before it was a religious symbol, it was a political symbol. It was a, it was a symbol of power and dominance of Rome. So even that is political. Then you have Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist. He's a political prisoner. Then you have Jesus will then take the place of a revolutionary. And so Jesus is pictured as a political revolutionary. He's far more radical than Barabbas, as we'll see. 
but he's a revolutionary. He wants change just like Barabbas does. Of course, he's going to go after it a completely different way, and he wants more than what Barabbas wants, far more. Uh, Tom Skinner wrote something uh, years ago. Let's see. And uh, I'm going to quote from it here at the beginning and then at the end. And he says, the Romans have two revolutionaries locked up. You got two Jesuses on your hands because they're both named Jesus. He says, so you got two Jesus on your hands. So it's not a question of whether there's going to be a revolution. Just which one? There's going to be one. And then we'll come back to that in a moment. But he's right. There's going to be one. And it doesn't look like a very good one on Jesus' part if his strategy is, look, guys, come together. We have no money. We have no clout. We have no buildings. We have no soldiers. Everything's going exactly according to plan. It's going exactly according to plan. Uh, Everybody hates us. That's perfect. I'm about to be arrested and crucified. Couldn't be any better. I mean, that's, the, that's what you have. Winning? So here's the thing. You can't be anything less. If Jesus is a radical revolutionary, as presented in this text, you can't be anything less than a radical revolutionary as his follower. So the question of the text really is, how do you get radicalized? How do you get radicalized? What does it take to get radicalized by Jesus? Well, remember that the kingdom and the cross now come together. They call him king of the Jews, and kingship and cross come together and are juxtaposed to one another. So two things have to happen, and they come through the cross for you to be radicalized. And the first thing that has to happen to radicalize, to revolutionize someone, as Jesus is thinking about it, is you have to understand that he stands in your place. He stands in your place. And so you have this figure, Barabbas, in there. He never speaks. And what a day it must have been for Barabbas. I mean, a guy who's on death row, absolutely knows his crimes, hates Rome, His sins are public. He knows what he deserves. He knows what he's going to get. Well, we have to... This quiet figure is really Mark's way of showing us one more thing about the cross and how you get radicalized in Jesus' camp. You have to realize Jesus stands in your place, and when you do that, he'll redefine and he'll radicalize your use of power. That's what he does. So let's see how he does that. First of all, Jesus stands in our place. This is how you get radicalized. So we meet this character. Again, it's Barabbas. Uh, In his presence, evil as he is, uh, makes the power of the cross just come to life. Because in him, we see the infinite value of Jesus' death. We've already seen Jesus' sinlessness and everyone else's sin in the text, which is precisely why God has him there 
and has determined since eternity began to put him there precisely because of that sin. And he's handed over. In fact, when you look at this, when you look at the, I got another way to look at this text. Look at the, now the yellow and the blue. The yellow has the handed him over. This is God's design. Because remember, when you see that term, remember when Jesus' predictions, three times in Mark, he predicts he will be handed over. It's God's plan. It's the divine plan. And you see that laid out three times in here. It begins and it ends. So we see that no matter what's happening on the inside, God is planning this. He's been planning it. Jesus is given over so that, look at this other word that's used how many times in this text, so that someone else can be released. That's the whole redemptive plan. I'm going to give you and I'm going to condemn you so that they can go free. And Barabbas is the picture of that. And it's, interestingly, the crowd is the one who calls for the substitution. Give us Barabbas and put Jesus on the cross. They call for the very substitution God has determined since eternity past. Now, here's something that's really, really important. In order for to understand the revolution that Jesus is trying to accomplish and what he's trying to do in human life, what he's trying to do in your life, this is really important to grasp. Why Jesus is in the center of this mess and why he's willingly there is because of sin. Sin must be dealt with. Sin matters, and forgiveness of sin matters. If you don't understand that, if you don't see that, you can't understand what Jesus Sin distorts, it corrupts, it disables. All human life, all reality is disrupted. It's dismantled by sin. And it has to be dealt with. And there can be no revolution at all, no ultimate real change of any sort, unless that's crystal clear. In your own mind, in the mind as you look at in your mind as you look at the world. You can't change anything to there. So I told you I was reading this book and I finally got through it this week uh, by N.T. Wright, and it's called The Day the Revolution Began. And it was interesting that I came across it at the time that we're in this passion of Jesus because uh, he says this, the powers gained their power, the powers that be, gained their power because idolatrous humans sinned. The power that all of them are wielding and the way they're using their power, unjustly, unfairly, selfishly, all because of sin, idolatrous, human sin. When God deals with sins on the cross, he takes back from the powers their usurped authority. That's what Jesus is doing right here. And so, in order for you to understand it, in order for you to be radicalized, you you have to put your name in place of Barabbas. You have to see yourself as Barabbas in this text. This is where it gets really personal. Mark wants you to put yourself in the story. All its twists and turns, he wants you to realize you are Barabbas. 
And Barabbas is absolutely the first person who gets substituted. And he's the only physical person. Jesus is on Barabbas' cross. The guilty, in this text, the guilty go free as if they're innocent. That's Barabbas. He goes free as if he's done nothing. The innocent is condemned as if he's guilty. In other words, God treats Jesus like Barabbas, and he treats Barabbas like Jesus. That's what God is doing in the big cosmic scheme of things for human beings. He's taking their place. Barabbas is, is us. And now, when you think about this substitutionary atonement, there's a number of great verses that come to mind here. Isaiah 53, obviously, that's all throughout Mark here in this passion. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, our chastisement he takes. With his wounds, we are healed. We have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And look at Peter, how Peter quotes it. He himself, Peter quotes Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. You say, what kind of healing is it? It's the healing so that righteousness can now be brought from you. Not, not the sickness of sin, but righteousness. And then you have 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is, this is unbelievable. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. And God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the substitutionary atonement. So, the first thing you have to do is you have to see yourself as Barabbas. Jesus is dying in my place. Now, once that happens, once, once you realize what, God, what the radical thing God is doing for you and what it's cosmically accomplishing in the world, then you realize that it obviously has to redefine and radicalize me and who I am and how I live, and now some righteousness has got to come out of me, a different use of power. I can't use power the way ever, because Jesus is coming at this, and we'll see right now, Jesus is about to redefine the use of power. Now, as awesome as the substitutionary atonement is, The cross in what Jesus is doing is accomplishing more than just me getting to go to heaven someday. What Jesus is doing there is, is, has, has profound implications for who we are right now. So N.T. Wright in his book on the revolution says, there's, when I first read this, I stopped. Let me see, because he says, the danger of saying 
Jesus died for my sins. And I thought, is there danger in saying that? But he goes on to say, is to imagine that there would be no more dying to do. No more suffering done to go. And that's not true. The revolution makes its way into the world that Jesus is trying to do right there and does before all these powerful figures. The revolution Jesus is accomplishing is actually being accomplished right before their eyes and they can't see it. And it actually makes its way into the world through the cross. And it's the only way. Suffering and dying is how the world is changed. Self through self-denial, through self-giving, which is Jesus' call to take up the cross. Everyone in this text is using power, but they're all using it for selfish reasons. And Jesus, right before their eyes, is subverting it. And that's why in verse 5 of this text, let's see, I have it up here. You have... Uh, Jesus made no reply, so Pilate is amazed. Pilate is dumbfounded by Jesus. He sees the whole power play going. He knows he's a pawn. And he's like, you're being accused of all these things. You're not doing anything. In other words, you're not acting like any of us in this text. You're not acting like any of us here today. You're supposed to be a king? What kind of king are you? What kind of authority do you possess? What kind of revolution do you have in mind? And that's what Pilate recognizes. And this word Mark has used many times, and it's all a sense of wonder and a sense of surprise. It's surprising to Pilate because he's never seen this kind of revolution ever. He gets Barabbas. He's seen that a million times. He knows exactly what to do with Barabbas. He has no idea what to do with Jesus. Jesus is calm. Everyone else is frantic. People are screaming, plotting. I mean, they're just coming out of their skin to get what they want in this text, every single group. And so Jesus' approach is very, very radical. And what you're seeing in this text and what we've got to see in this text is not just God's cosmic plan to deal with sin, but how does the cross become the central organizing principle of our lives? That's what's got to happen. It's both. At the heart of the gospel, he goes on to say, is a redefinition of power. That is one of the central ways in which the early Christians interpreted the death of Jesus. The reason the cross carried such life-changing power and carries it still is because it is embodied, expressed, and symbolized the true power of which all earthly power is either an imitation or a corrupt parody. It isn't the case that power as we know it in the real world is the norm, and the Christian subversion of it is a kind of bizarre twist that might just work even though we don't see how. It's a great line. 
The gospel of Jesus summons us to believe that the power of self-giving love unveiled on the cross is the real thing and the power that made the world in the first place and is now in the business of remaking it and that the other forms of power, the corrupt and self-serving ways in which the world is so often run from global empires and multi-million dollar businesses down to classrooms, families, gangs, are all a distortion. And he's right, and Jesus is confronting it all right there. Now, let me, toward the end of this here, just bring this home to the practical way that we need to see it. In Mark chapter 10, uh, you remember, this is so important, because I want you to see the, the, the connection between Jesus' death and atonement and how it's supposed to impact our lives. And so, if you go back to chapter 10, then you remember when Jesus is approached by, or actually Jesus says 1045, where he says, uh, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and here it is, to give his life a ransom for many. That's the atonement. That's the substitutionary atonement. Jesus predicts it in chapter 10. But what is the context that that verse gets set in? because it's the same context we're in right now in the, in the trial. James and John come to Jesus and unashamedly ask for power. It's a power play. We want to sit on your left and right. I mean, they, they, they employ their mom to help. And so here's what they're saying, and we say it. So hear yourself in James and John. Listen, we understand what it takes to run a kingdom. We understand what it takes to run a kingdom. You're going to need a right-hand man and a left-hand man. We're your guys. We would like to share in your authority, and we'd also like to reap some of the benefits, some of the rewards that come, you know, with, with being at the top. That's their request. And Jesus says, you misunderstand the kingdom. I'm about to be baptized in a way that you have no idea, and I'm about to drink a cup. I'm about to drink all of it in a way you can't even grasp, referring to his death. And then, right after Jesus explains that to them, he, re- he says this, and you go, where does this fit into the atonement thinking? Because he says this, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the... He immediately goes to people with power. That's the first thing he does. He's talking about his death. You ask for power? Let me show you how my death impacts power. He says, you know the rulers of the world, this is how people with power, they love to use their power to lord it over other people. I don't want this to be the way you are. I don't want you to be this way. And then he goes on to say, instead, who's ever going to be great among you needs to be a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you needs to be a slave, for even the Son of Man is going to give his life substitutionally for you. Here comes substitution with a way to live. What I'm doing here in my use of power, giving it up 
is exactly what I want you to do in this text. You say, how does Jesus radicalize a person? When a person realizes what Jesus has done for them, it changes the way they view power. Now, I know you're thinking about power and you're going, I don't really know what you mean by that use of power in my life. Well, Jesus is about to say to his disciples, uh, I do have actually two places that will be available next to me. You want to be righty and lefty? How about joining me on the cross? How about, how about me being in the middle of you two there? Because that's exactly what, when you read this text, when you see the tooth, Jesus crucified between two thieves, this is exactly what you think of. I do have two spots. Now, Marcus, who's a commentator on Mark, says, Jesus enters his kingship paradoxically enthroned on a cross. Nobody recognizes it despite the accurate labels they give him. They call him king, and they put king of the Jews above him. And so what's happening right here in this moment, what Jesus is actually doing, he really is winning. Because what he's doing is he's, he's letting loose a whole new sort of power on the world. He is unleashing it right here in this moment. He is unleashing a new sort of power, and at the heart of the revolution, at the heart of the revolution is self-denial and self-giving love. And Barabbas is the direct beneficiary. So the, Mark is saying the cross doesn't just atone for your sin, it revolutionizes your life too. Jesus' death is not just something that was done for you. It was done to you. That is the key. And so, Jesus' radical act makes anyone who follows him every bit as radical, every bit as crazy to the rest of the world. How can you be that loving? How can you be that sacrificial? Now, I know lots of Christians, because I've had this conversation many times over the years in ministry, they're very cautious about not getting too radical for Jesus. Lots of Christians live with this thought in their head. Part of the reason is because there are some people who call themselves radicals who are dumb. <laughs> they're just not very smart. They're not, they don't, don't carry a lot of grace. They don't socialize well. You can be radical without being the jerk in the office. You can be radical without being the jerk at home. You can be radical without being the weirdo. And so when I say radical, you're like, hey, listen, you know, you can take the Jesus thing so far, but then that's how so many people live their life. You can take Jesus only so far, and then it's not practical. It doesn't work in the real world. That's how most people think. And so uh, that's not what I mean. Um, so... So the question today would be, here's, this is, this is J James and John, has this they have this power play. 
because they want authority. And so Jesus would, be, would, would say, listen, I've transformed your thinking of power, so here's your new power play. And so here's the question that I would ask you today. What are you doing with your power? And when you leave here today, what's your power play? What is your power play? And I went through a list of things in my own life. And uh, let me make it clear. Every single person in here has some power. We all in this room have power. And let me point out where the power is in your life so that you can say, well, now I understand what my power play needs to be. I'm going to say the first power you have is relational power. I did a wedding yesterday for a friend, somebody that I love very deeply and have known a very, very long time. And it was one of the most special occasions that I've, that I've been a part of in a long time. And uh, I'm studying this text, and I'm telling this man who's 50 years old and never been married. She's 39 and had never been married. And I, and I read this to them. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And I realized that's exact how much power each of them have. Do you know husbands and wives alike destroy marriages? Because of the use of power. They can't surrender. The thought of giving more than they take disrupts their whole reality. The fact that they lose a little bit destroys them, and it's like Jesus never did a thing for them. Relationally, a husband and a wife both have power. Whether or not they'll use it for God. I wonder what kind of power plays you're making in your marriage. Because if you're following Jesus and you've been rat, and he has done this radical thing for you, died for you, and completely changed your view of power, you can't be married, husband or wife, and not realize what you're giving up in this power. How about parents? You got power. Are you just like sucking the life out of your kids? Because you're so controlling and you're so fearful. You got power. You can use it well. You're not perfect and you'll never be. But you have an opportunity with that power to discipline. It's a great use of power to lovingly discipline. Some of you aren't using that power. Some of you, as parents, we got to be really careful how we use that power. Stay on the relational thing. Listen, and every one of us fall into this guy. If you've been hurt, you've got power. You're the power of the victim. You've got power of the victim. 
oh, don't let me be the victim because I'll let you have it and I'll feel justified in doing it. Do you know how much power, do you know how much power is in bringing revenge to somebody? Making them pay? Who are you making pay? That's power. And you're, I guarantee, either we have been doing it recently or are doing it right now, holding that power over somebody's head. And we love the feeling of it. Jesus would say, do you know how much power is in forgiveness? Do you know how much power is in forgiveness? Do you know Barabbas' only hope of becoming a new man is the fact that Jesus is going to take his place? And when he realizes the forgiveness he's received, that power will revolutionize. Jesus revolutionizes revolutionaries. That's what Jesus is saying. Please don't be all thrilled that I've taken your place on the cross, but then you don't want to take up a cross yourself and start using your power differently. You've got power. How about financial power? Money's power. It's a freedom. It's a power. When it comes to sacrificing, can you do that? Because money's a really clear place where you can see the stinginess of your heart and, and, and your compassion for people. What are you doing with, with, with money's power in your life? You might have positional power. You might be an employer. You might be a boss. You might be... Are you being honest? Are you being just? Are you being fair? Are you being sacrificial? And if you have political power... Listen, Jesus revolutionized every political position you could hold when when he called people. Simon was a zealot. He would be your small government guy. Your right wing, right, right wing small government guy. Matthew, on the other hand, was a tax collector. He was a collaborator. He's, he wants big government. He likes it. Then you had to group the Essenes, who they just totally withdrew. And we got all three in this room. The Essenes. They just withdrew. They didn't care. They didn't care about that. They cared about their spiritual lives, and that's all they did. They lived in caves and tried to live as pure a life as they could. They just basically withdrew from society. Jesus called all three of these groups to him and revolutionized all three of them. Simon, you're a zealot. You want to follow me? I'm going to revolutionize you into something else. You can't, you can't be that. So no, no, no political party can embody all that Jesus is and that he's accomplishing in a person's life. No political party can do this. He revolutionizes all of them. And there's a lot to say here about our own political environment right now. And the most important thing is that you're loving and sacrificial and that you're who Christ would want you to be in this environment that we have right now. And I'm not on Facebook 
but I, but there's a lot of things being said and done and thrown around in the name of truth that are just, can I just, you're not radical enough. You're not a radical enough follower if you're, if you're spewing hate and venom. You're not a radical enough follower. As radical as you think you are, you're not radical enough. How about personal power? You got power over yourself, things you say, things you do. How are you using that power? There's all kinds of power in your life. You know, there's people who won't serve because they're going to lose a little bit of sleep. We can't get some people to serve in different capacities in the life of this church because they're going to lose a little sleep. They'll have to get up 45 minutes earlier on a Sunday morning. They might be a little bit late to lunch and have to deal with a crowd. They don't want to go to small group because they might it's going to wreck their Sunday evening or their, their night. In other words, sacrifice, as soon as we get to that, no matter what it is, even though we know it's something God would, would want us to do. Don't take any of my time. God help you if you take my resources, and please don't take 15 minutes of my sleep. In other words, when it comes to sacrifice, we've completely missed it. We keep saying to God, oh, I love you, and I'm really glad you died on a cross for me, but I prefer a seat next to you on the throne instead of on the cross. Hey, this is painful. This is painful. So you have to put yourself in Barabbas' shoes. And when you do, by the way, I mean, I didn't develop this nearly as much as I wanted to. Um... Barabbas and what he has done, what Jesus has done for us. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, the radical thing Jesus has done for you, how can you not follow Jesus and not be a little radical? So Tom Skinner and this mission urbana, an African-American preacher, was so powerful. Um, I came across this, uh, and this is what he says at the end of his talk in 1970. At a, about U.S. Race, racism and world evangelism is what he was talking about. At the end of his talk, he says, why Barabbas and not Jesus? Why do you pick Barabbas and not Jesus? And he, he, he goes on to say, let me read this to you, you'll enjoy it. Barabbas is the cat burning down the system. He's killing people. Why him instead of Jesus? And he says, very simple. If you let Barabbas go, you can always stop him. The most Barabbas will do is go out, round up another bunch of guerrillas, and start another riot. You will always stop Barabbas just by rolling tanks into his neighborhood, bringing out the National Guard, putting, putting his riot down. Just find out where he lives, where he keeps his ammunition, raid his apartment, and shoot him while he's asleep. You can stop Barabbas. But then he asks... How do you stop Jesus? They nailed him to a cross. They didn't realize in nailing Jesus to the cross, they were putting on that cross the sinful nature of all humanity. Christ was nailed to the cross, and it was more than just a political radical dying. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. On that cross, Christ was bearing his own, in his own body my sin and he was proclaiming my liberation on that cross. And on that cross, he shed his blood to cleanse me of all my sin and to set me free. 
And three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups, coups of all time. He got up out of the grave, and when he arose from the dead, the Bible now calls him the second man, the new man, the leader of a new creation, a Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and to establish a new order. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was revolutionizing humanity, atoning for their sin, literally dying in their place. And from that moment, that cross would be transformed into something profoundly impacting us even today. Pilate had no idea the profound impact this man Jesus before him would have. He goes on to write this, Keep in mind, my friend, with all your militancy and radicalism, that all the systems of men are doomed to destruction. All the systems of men will crumble, and finally, only God's kingdom and his righteousness will prevail. You will never be radical. And here's the greatest line. You will never be radical until you come to be part of the new order and then go into the world that's enslaved, a world that's filled with hunger, poverty, and racism, and all those things that are the work of the devil. And proclaim liberation to the captives for your liberator has come. Now you, since Christ died in your place, are now a part of that revolution and you have been radicalized by him and you never use, we don't use power the same way and love is the highest value and sacrifice and self-denial are critical to it. So, what's your power play today? What's your power play? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its just stunning power and impact in our lives. What you have accomplished for us is is just truly, Lord, without... It's unable, we're just unable to understand fully just how much you love us and what you've done for us. But as we begin to see it, so radical, and it radicalizes us, and I pray it would. I pray everyone in this room would know the power play they have to play and play it today. In Jesus' name, amen.